Our teaching for this morning will come from Romans chapter 8, and we'll look at verses 26 through 30. This is God's Word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are coming up to the end of Romans chapter 8, and, and as I like to remind us every week, we're looking at the book of Genesis and the book of Romans this year and in the next year, and using them as conversation partners to tell us about this great God uh, of whom the scriptures speak, and who we are as his image bearers, and what is this thing we call creation, and what has gone so terribly wrong, and what is he going to do about it to make it right in the end. And uh, we're going to have one more week in Romans uh, next week, and then we'll break, and, and we're going to do a, a, a series called Songs of Christmas as we head up to, uh, to Christmas and through Advent. And then in the new year, we're going to pick up back in Genesis uh, for a time. So um, we're heading up here. This is really, um, we're reaching a, a really good break point in the book of Romans. And We've been in Romans now, I think, for three weeks, and this will be our fourth out of five. And that's for good reason. This is perhaps one of the most well-known, but also the, one of the most richest, beautiful chapters of, of the scriptures that lay out for us um, gospel blessings. And it begins with perhaps one of the greatest statements of gospel assurance, when Paul writes and he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then he follows that up with the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, the big contrast between Romans 7 and Romans 8 is the shift from the law of God to the Spirit of God. The law is good and holy and righteous, but it can't change you. It can't give you life. Enter the Holy Spirit in Romans 8. The third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who takes up residence in the hearts and lives of sinners in order to give you new life in Jesus. And he unfolds this ministry of the Spirit who enables you to obey God. That is to love what he loves, to love who he loves. The Spirit enables us to put sin to death. And to live a new life in Christ. The Spirit assures us of our adoption into God's family. He is our guarantee and foretaste of better things yet to come. And yet, and we could say more. There's this, this chapter just full of all of these assurances. But then you have to ask the question, why? After laying out the bad news of the gospel and then unfolding the good news of the gospel and then applying it to you. Why all of these assurances? And I think the reason is because there are formidable enemies to that assurance. 
that we all face. For example, indwelling sin. Remember, that's one of the main themes we've talked about. You've been set free from sin, the power of sin, but the presence of sin remains. Indwelling sin chips away at these assurances. Every moment of every day. But then there's also doubts about God's love. Does he, can he, will he really love me? What about the reality of suffering in this life? That's not um, a sidebar. It's actually very, it's at the heart of the, the life of faith. And we looked at that. That the pattern of the life of faith is the path of suffering leads to glory. But then what also about a loss of hope? Perhaps you become weary and tired of waiting. Perhaps your patience for what God says is waning. And knowing all of this, Paul, in in the passage we're going to look at today, he digs deeper in and he reaches further back into the riches of God's gospel blessings as he approaches the climax of this great chapter. And so we're going to see this morning... The help of the Spirit, verses 26 to 27, and the love of the Father in verses 28 to 30. So first, let's look at the help of the Spirit here. Verse 26, Paul begins with this word, likewise, which you ought to hear in that, that this is very closely connected to what's come before. Similarly, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, Now, I want to pause right there for a moment and just look at that sentence. What Paul is saying here is that as the hope that we talked about in the previous passage, gospel hope sustains us in our suffering, so also the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. And this term weakness here is, um, I want you to think about this in, in the broadest, most comprehensive way. It is the other side of the coin to the sufferings that we've talked about in previous weeks. That this covers the whole range of weakness and frailty, of our own limitations, even the realities that we experience in the face of our own uh, sin and other people's sin and the brokenness of the world. That is weakness that we all feel Because we simply cannot escape the present sufferings of this time. And these weaknesses describe, in a comprehensive way, our experience, the side of heaven. That we are weak people. And here, Paul says, the basic definition of the Holy Spirit's ministry is that he helps us in our weakness. He helps us in our weakness. Now, what, what does he mean here by this, this idea to help? How does he help? Well, I want you to think for a moment here that this idea of help is, is somewhat lost in translation because this term, it, it does not mean that the Spirit's help is that he just arrives in your life and says, you just move over and let me do it for you. This is not a let go and let God statement. 
What Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit helps the believer to do what he or she could never do in his or her own strength. This is the Holy Spirit's integration into your life as you are with all of your strengths and your weaknesses and your personality strengths and flaws and he weaves himself into your life in order that in a very real but yet mysterious way you are able to do what you could never do on your own. Now, I find this very difficult to illustrate, but let me try. Uh, one of our, our four boys has got an amazingly creative, adventurous mind, and he loves gear, particularly of an outdoor military flavor. He loves backpacks, he loves knives, he loves camouflage, he loves weatherproof matches. He loves tents and sleeping bags and machetes and axes and all this stuff. And he loves it when his friends come over and they get all their gear and they go on an adventure. And it is, on the one hand, one of the coolest things about being a dad. And on the other hand, one of the most infuriating because... Shall we say, he struggles with putting things away. And his room is a disaster zone 99% of the time. And as any healthy boy would be, he doesn't see that. And so I get really upset because he doesn't clean up his room. And so here are the options. What does help from a father look like? Well, one option is I get really upset and I come storming in and I say, you do it. You messed it up. It's all on you. You clean it up. And I would be right. It's his job. He's responsible for it. He should know better. He got it all out. He should know where it's supposed to go back. But he is 11. <laughs> okay, that's one option. The other option is, forget it. You don't know how to do this. You continue to do the same thing over and over. I will do it. I will clean it up because I'm sick of it. Okay, I hope you're getting the picture. That is not at all how the Spirit helps in any way, shape, or form. Rather, there's a third option. Would be me coming in and saying, wow, um, you need a lot of help here. And even if my saying that upsets you and interferes with your plans, I need, you to, I need to help you to see it. But here's how I want to help you to see it. I want to help clean it up with you. And I can't really tell you, I've only done that a couple times. <laughs> uh... And I can't even really tell you, where, where does my help and his effort begin and end? I, I don't know. But somehow, our collective effort and my helping him, despite the fact he doesn't want that help, results in him being able to do something he could never do on his own. 
And to be honest, that's about as good as I can do right now for trying to help you get a picture. What does it mean when Paul says the Spirit helps you in your weakness? That is what he does. Paul is here describing the heart of the Spirit's ministry in the life of God's children. And then, though, he goes on here and he gives us a specific illustration of how he helps. So, to make the connection, if my specific illustration of helping one of my boys is helping him clean up his room, that's not the only way I help them, I hope. And it's not the only way that the Spirit, he helps you in all kinds of ways. But let's look at the specific way. Paul says, he helps us in prayer. And why? Look at verse 26. We do not know what to pray for. And perhaps you found the irony right after JB was finished praying and Matt read this passage. Because we just read the Lord's Prayer and, and, and JB prayed for us in keeping with that prayer. And the very first thing we read here is for we do not know what to pray for. And both of those things are true. But let's look at this for a minute. Why does Paul give us this example that we we do not know what to pray for? I think there are two main reasons in light of the context of this passage. One of them is, back in verse 18 of chapter 8, is the sufferings of this present time. What should you pray for in the midst of difficulty and trial in your life? Should you pray for help to endure that? Or should you pray for help, or should you pray that God would take it away? I suppose it could be both. How do you know what to pray for? Or the second reason here, our own weaknesses, which we see right here. In other words, we don't know what to pray for because there are problems outside of us that are beyond our figuring out, and there are problems inside of us that are beyond our figuring out. But what is true about all of them, as we noticed last week from verse 23, is that we live with a constant state of groaning, of inward groaning. So for example, there are these inner aches, sometimes inaudible, sometimes, as it says here, groaning's too deep for words, aches over guilt in your life. Shame in your life. Perhaps sin that continues to entangle you and trip you up. And perhaps at the very same time, sin that you wish and want to get rid of and at the same time you don't want to. Or there are aches and groans over just this unending sense of helplessness and futility over the lives that we live in this world that is so broken. Whether it be stories that are just gut-wrenching over refugees trying to escape war in their homelands. Uh, Bad rulers. The exploitation of sex and trafficking human beings for money. Whether it be poverty or injustice. Whether it be aches and groans over the lives of people that you love. Whether they be your children or Perhaps your siblings or your spouse or your parents or your friends. We live with these inward groans. And how do you know what to pray for? 
In fact, we don't know what to pray. The deeper you look into those things, the more complex and sorrowful and hard they become. And yet, what I want you to see here in verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I want you to hear this. Your groanings are matched with and by the Spirit's groanings. Here the Holy Spirit is described as groaning. You remember, the creation groans. We groan. But here the Holy Spirit groans. And what you need to see here, what Paul is telling you is that, as we read elsewhere in the scriptures, that Jesus is our great high priest. That he lives to intercede before us at the throne of the heavenly father in heaven. We're being told, not only do we have an intercessor in heaven, you have an intercessor within. Who dwells in you. Who understands what you can't even put words to. And don't even know what to put words to. And it's this same spirit that lives within you and groans within you who before has given you the ability to cry, Abba, Father. And it's this spirit who takes those cries, the ones that we don't even know how to cry, and he fills them out with his own groans. And they are groanings that are, that fill, that are fit for God. That God delights in. And not only that, what we also see, not only does the Spirit's groanings match our groanings, look in verse 27. He who searches hearts, that is, God the Father. God the Father searches into the deep things of your heart. Now what are you seeing happen here? The Spirit of Christ dwells in you His groans meet your groans. God the Father searches and sees into your heart and understands what's happening. And he sees and knows what the Spirit sees and knows. And the Holy Spirit takes what we can't or won't and he utters to God the Father in perfect harmony with what God loves. Now, what does that mean? That means that there is no part of you that's hidden from God. Now, that can be really exposing, but what I want you to see here is that ought to give you great hope and confidence in your weakness. That simply groaning internally as a child of God, God sees that. The Spirit meets that. And He actually prays on your behalf what you don't know what to pray for. In such a way that your Heavenly Father hears it and He's pleased with it and He promises to answer it in keeping with a father's love and wisdom. Think of it like this. You ever seen parents 
with infant children who can't speak yet. And those children, they grunt and they groan and they writhe and show their aches and their frustration in all kinds of ways. And it's amazing how parents really do gain a certain facility to understand what those groans and antics really are. But here's what's amazing about God as your father. He doesn't just look at your external antics and groanings. He sees to your heart. He sees where no one else can see. And you know what? He sees it better and more clearly than you do. Here is the point. If this is true, there is no way the father will ever let the weakest child go. Because the spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, how can you be sure that this is the case, that he will never let you go, especially in the face of the the sufferings and the weakness that we've been talking about. And that brings us to the second point here, the love of the Father. Now these verses, uh, 28 to 30, are uh, uh, some of the most well-known, oft-quoted verses by Christian believers. And I have to admit, uh, as I was reflecting on this passage this week, there, there was a certain amount of heightened pressure that I felt. (laughs) And I think for good reason, because these are beautiful. And I want these to resonate and drill down in your life beyond just a pithy statement. You know, Romans 8, 28, God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How many of you can rattle that off? But see, that, that, that beautiful verse, those beautiful words don't just fall out of heaven out of a vacuum. They convey to us the love of God to his children. And what do they show us? How do they reveal God's love to us? Well, first look in verse 28 again. Simply put, they tell us that God is at work. These verses, this verse We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This describes God's, what theologians call his providence, his providential care. And how does it reveal God's providential care? It says, God is at work in absolutely every detail and circumstance of your life. That there is no part of your life, and in fact, there's no part of this world that falls outside of God's sovereign, providential rule. Not one thing. Absolutely nothing falls outside of that. And so when he says, when we see here that Absolutely everything falls under God's providential care. That includes your groanings. That includes your trials and your sufferings. That includes your weaknesses. But I think we have to drill into this a little bit. What does that mean, though, really? You know, the test case for this is the really, really bad stuff that either perhaps you have done or other people have done to you or you know people have done. The unspeakable things. And the answer to that, 
Does this really include the unspeakable things? The best way to understand that is we need to go to Jesus and the cross. Listen here from Acts chapter 2. This is on the day of Pentecost. Jesus has ascended into heaven. And Peter is preaching in Jerusalem to all of the Jews in Jerusalem listening. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. This Jesus according, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here you have two things that are both true at the same time. That according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge and at the hands of wicked men who operating on their own decisions, under their own volition, killed Jesus. Here's what you have when verse 28 says that God works all things for the good of his children. They're not even the wicked intentions and plotting and scheming of human beings can thwart God's purposes to bring good out of those horrible things. And I'll give you an example of this on a, on a more human level in, in a sense with one of my students when I was doing campus ministry. It was uh, this young lady's last semester at Duke. And it was maybe the second weekend of the semester. And she called me. She had gone to visit her family for the weekend. And she called me and she was in tears. And she said, well, my dad just told my mom and my brother and sister that he's leaving her. Uh, that he's been, he doesn't love her anymore. And she was devastated. Never saw it coming. And the next three months, the, the last semester of her college experience, I saw some of her best friends gather around her and love her and pray with and for her to the point where the, at the end of the semester, we always would have the, the seniors stand up and kind of share about their experience over the past four years. Now God's been at work in their life. And, and she said, I never thought I'd be standing here in this situation at the end of my college career with my parents divorced. I never saw it coming. And it hurts so bad I can't put words to it. And yet at the very same time, I can stand here and tell you I wouldn't wish it any other way. Because through this experience, God has revealed himself to me, his love for me, the power of Jesus for me in ways I never thought possible. I have to tell you, as a campus minister, I was utterly blown away by that. But she was giving her own story of what is told here that God works all things 
even the worst of things, for good for his beloved children. Now, here's something I want you to think about. What is this good that God is working for you if you belong to Jesus? Look at verse 29. In order that you might be conformed to the image of his son. The goal, the good that Jesus wants for you is that you would look like Jesus, that his life would be woven into your life, that the image of God, again, here's Paul picking up on the book of Genesis, chapter one. The image of God would be renewed and remade in you that was so tarnished and ruined due to sin. Now, how do we get there, though? Or better put, how does God get us there? And this is where we come to verses 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to see something here. First of all, all of the verbs in verses 29 and 30 have God as their subject. These describe what God does to get you from here to glory. And what does he do? First of all, there's this word, foreknew. God began in eternity past to work in the lives of his children. This word foreknew, oftentimes people describe it as God uh, looking into some future moment in your life and seeing what you would do, that you at some point in your life would come to believe in him. And on the basis of that, he would save you. And, and I want to divest you of that notion. That is not what the Bible means by foreknow. And the reason I say that is we have to allow the Bible to define Bible terms. And in the Old Testament, and even in the New, the word to know, when it has a person as its object, to know someone, is almost equivalent to to love someone. And so when the Bible says that those whom God foreknew, what, he, what it's saying here is that to those whom God foreloved in eternity past, it describes how God views your person, not your actions. It's a description of God's purposeful, intentional, active love before time began. And that foreknowing is then followed up with he predestined. That is, if God foreloves you, where is he going to take you? This term predestined is the goal of God's foreknowing love. That God's love isn't passive emotion or feeling. It's an active, purposeful love toward the highest conceivable goal. To make you like Jesus. And this work of God 
for loving you and predestining you to this great outcome is experienced in your own life when he calls you through the gospel. And he says to you, you are mine. I have called you by name. This is what theologians call the effectual calling of God. That when God's word in the hands of the spirit takes root and lie in the heart of a sinner, they are changed. They are what the Bible calls born from above. And then they are justified. That God forgives, yes, and he accepts, yes, but even more than that, you are given the righteousness of Jesus. And then it says that you are glorified. Now, I want you to pick up on this. I thought glory was still future, and yet here it's described in the past tense. Glorified. And remember, this whole chapter is about assurance, confidence. Why does Paul use and say glorified in the past tense? Because it's as good as done. Your future destiny as a beloved child of God, conform to the image of Jesus, is so sure and certain. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. It's so certain, Paul can speak of it as if it had already happened. This is the bedrock of grace. That's why we talk about it all the time here at Red Mountain. And so this passage, this chapter is written for people like you and me who have deep groans. And they persist. How can you be sure of this love of the Father? Well, we'll get to look at it more next week. But how you can be sure is because he did not spare his own son. But he gave him up for us all. And why? What does that mean? If he did that, how will he then not also with him graciously give you all things? This is good news. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the riches that it gives us. And we ask that you would help us to believe and to take into the very depths of our being that You have nothing but good in store for us. And that is true no matter what's going on in our lives, however painful or however mysterious or however bewildering, but that because of Jesus, we can have hope. For it's in his name we pray, amen.